For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet Jing Xia and Bin Hu, a married couple who bring East and West together through music as duo Shenwasserie. Hear about the unusual and largely forgotten history of Tucson's first city zoo, as uncovered by David Layton, columnist for the Arizona Daily Star. And author Juanita Havel shares some verse about a special friendship between neighbors, a woman, and a little girl who each find huge amounts of joy in the smallest things. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. My guests, Jing Xia and Bin Hu, are a married couple who live in Tucson. They believe strongly in bringing the best of Eastern and Western culture together through music. Bin learned to play guitar at age 10, taught at home by his music-loving father. He then dedicated his life to studying guitar in China and Europe and at the U of A. Jing Xia has been playing the guzhong since she was age 4. It's a horizontal harp-like instrument with 21 strings. The guzhong is often used to represent nature and the elements in traditional Chinese music, and Jing also plays percussion. As duo Shenhua Suri, this couple explores the emotional depth that binds classical compositions with global folk music. They'll be featured in a free virtual global arts showcase happening next week. I started by asking Bean to explain the duo's unusual name. Chinoiserie is a French word, and uh, it's used also in English. Uh, basically for, you know, the Western interpretation of the Far East artistic art elements like ornamentation or music, art. You know, typically in the in- interior design, now they have this Chinoiserie style, you know. In Chinese, we also have a Chinese name, it's Dongfeng, so it's like the wind from the Eastern. So we really love the combination of this the French name and the Chinese name is like uh, how you feel it because the wind is not stopped, right? It's always just flow in the air so you can always feel it and also it sometimes it will influence each other we got the exchange our culture, our styles and the music. Yeah, I mean we like the name because uh, it implies a cultural exchange. What possibilities are opened up when you play as a duo, when you put the guitar and the guzhong together? What kind of places can you go musically that you might not do as well on your own attempting? The idea of our, our duo or, or the intent is to bring people a multicultural experience. It's like jazz fusion, you know, you, you, you mix different styles and the two instruments are very, very different. At the beginning, we were trying to blend sound of the two, but that wasn't the right approach. We have to show the differences to exhibit the charm of, of each instrument, not trying to, you know, become similar or, you know, try to 
like merge each other. We thought, you know, guitar is the is using the folk in, folk music, uh, guzheng is the using folk music. So we started from Spanish repertoire de fallas because you know guitar is natural for Spanish music, and Spain was also occupied by the Arabs for for centuries. So um, it has this Oriental influence to it. So slowly we discovered more repertoire just by listening different styles and try to you know look for commonalities between different musical cultures. As we go through the process, we actually have a better understanding of different cultures. We're looking at more the commonalities than differences. Jing, if I may, how does the blend and the conversation between the instruments reflect your own relationship with you and Ben? Um, <laughs> would you say that in some ways your instruments represent your personalities well or not so well? Oh, very good question. <laughs> it's difficult to say because I never uh, have thought these questions. <laughs> uh. Well, it's, it, it was one of the first things that occurred to me because I think it's interesting when artists who are married collaborate how that reflects the trust and the understanding that they built up as people yeah because Bing and I we know each we got to know each other because of the music and so the music is totally a part of our our life and I think the music between us between you and Bing between Bing and me is like the communication understanding to each other because we come from different cultures even though we come from the same country, peace from the north of China and I from the south of China. We have so many differences. Jing has been uh, devoted to traditional Chinese music for, <laughs> for her life. Yes. I have been devoted to European classical music since I was 10. So we absolutely came from different backgrounds. Uh-huh. Even though I'm Chinese, but I left, <laughs> I, I, I left China when I was 18. I was traveling in Europe and studying. Even though you're so steeped in classical tradition, I do wonder if the two of you have ever played around with more contemporary music. Have you ever covered any pop songs? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we just have fun sometimes. Oh, let's try this TV Wonder yeah. superstition. <laughs> yeah. You know, we do have fun. Like, I think that Gu Zheng has this pentatonic scale can play blues really well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Um, I think people will, will love that idea, yeah. So. Yeah. I think hearing you play American-style blues would be uh, revolutionary. I think the, the instruments not only just symbolize one country or one tradition. I think you are the music, not the instrument. So you give the instrument more possibilities what the what the Gujan can play. So I'm really, really uh, excited about the process that being and I just explore the different styles and the cultures to see what it sounds. Yeah, I love what you say. The, the imagination is uh, infinity, yeah. When you said that, Jing, it made me realize that 
people think of the instrument being the voice, but really you are giving it the voice. Mm. Yes. And I also, when I play the music, I think my mind is um, rooted in each note. So I will follow the notes, and I hope that the pure of the music that I gave can enter the audience's heart. Yeah, I can just totally use musical language to directly to talk to them. Oh, that's lovely. Another odd question, perhaps, for you. Do you dream music? Do you find yourself playing music in your dreams, or do you wake up with a, a new melody or a new idea sometimes? Yeah, I wish I had a musical dream. <laughs> I don't know about dreams. I dream music, but not the very good dream because I'm very nervous. It's like, I oh, I forgot the scores on stage. Or, <laughs> oh, I forgot to dream my, my, my peak, something like that. Is it that the two of you ended up in Tucson? That's a question that I've wondered about. I came here after I got my master's degree from the Mozarteum in Salzburg. And I came here for, for a DMA program, which I finished last year at the University of Arizona, Open Guitar Studies. And Jing, did you come with Ben, or did, did you end up in Tucson for your own reasons? After I graduated, the Confucius Institute at the University of Arizona invited me to be the Chinese music teacher to share my music to the local audience and to the local communities. So that's why I came here and then I met Bing <laughs> in Tucson. Uh, we met here. <laughs> Do you plan to stay long term? Do you feel at home in the desert? I don't know. That's always a question. You know, one day we really enjoy the weather and, and so on. And, and sometimes we think, oh, we would be nice to go to some museum. <laughs> so it depends on the day. <laughs> the definition of home is the family. Where is the family? Is where is the home? So because being an area is here, so I feel, yeah, I'm here. <laughs> My home is here. Thanks to duo Shenhua Suri, Jing Xia, and Bin Hu. Along with the ensemble's Purple Bamboo and Tucson Sino Dance, the duo will be featured next week in a celebration of Asian American culture, sponsored by the Pima County Public Library and AZPM. The virtual Global Arts Showcase happens Wednesday, June 2nd at 6.30 p.m.
You can register now for this free online community event. There's a link on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Gators and chickens and sheep, oh my! It turns out there is an almost forgotten chapter in Tucson's zoological history that predates the Reed Park Zoo by eight years. My guest, David Layton, is the Street Smarts columnist for the Arizona Daily Star. While doing some research for an upcoming article about Reed Park, he ran across some information that, when he told me about it, I just couldn't wait to share with everybody. Well, it all began with a man named Edgar O'Neill Dye, who is commonly known as Neil Dye. And that's D-Y-E. When we say the Dye Zoo, that's how it's spelled. Correct. So he began working at the sewage treatment plant, uh, which is located on Sweetwater Drive and I-10 Freeway, in 1951 as a chemist. A few years later, about 1955, he became superintendent of the plant And he decided that he wanted to start a beautification program on the south end of the 40 acres that comprised the city plant uh, near the main building. So he had his staff obtain trees, bushes, flowering shrubs, Bermuda grass, and whatever else they could get from the park system nursery, which was located at present-day Reed Park. In order to irrigate the grass, the plants, and the trees that he'd obtained, he started using effluent water. Now, effluent water really helps plants grow, and as a result, the grass grew to as high as four feet tall and was incredibly thick and matted. Um, It also harbored animals such as snakes. So it became a problem for them because they had all this very tall grass, very thick grass, and they had trouble controlling it. So what they attempted to do was to, um, in the fall, what they did is they set the grass on fire. But what ended up happening is they ended up setting a couple trees on fire and also a couple telephone poles. Color me surprised. Yeah. And so that wasn't the best of ideas. So then they tried to call the Parks Department, Gene C. Reed and the Tucson Parks and Recreation Department, to have them bring mowers out and mow the grass. Back in those days, they didn't have a lot of mowers. And they didn't, weren't able to make it out there, but just a couple times a year. And oftentimes, because of the thickness, the mowers they had at that point didn't even work. In 1957, Neil Dye heard that the University of Arizona was selling 13 sheep who could be used to mow the ground. So he filled out a city requisition form to purchase them. Now, on the form itself, he put 13 rambulets. Now, rambulets are a type of sheep bred in France, but the purchasing agent for the city of Tucson believed that it was a hydraulic equipment. So he went ahead and proved it, and in turn, Dye got the first 13 sheep and formed what was the first unofficial city zoo, having utilized city funds. Well, it sounds like Dye was rather forward-thinking. I mean, he wanted to use an ecologically friendly way to handle the problem. Correct. 
so after utilizing the 13 sheep, he realized that they couldn't eat enough grass to keep the grass under control. So what he decided to do was start accepting other vegetarian animals um, that eat grass, such as horses, cows, and goats. Uh, he also conceived the idea, because it was around Easter time, that after Easter was over, many people had rabbits and chickens that had been given as gifts they, that they no longer wanted. So both the Arizona Daily Star and Tucson Citizen newspapers ran ads offering to provide a home at the plant for these unwanted animals. So by October 1959, about two years after it opened, Dai Zoo had 19 sheep, 12 ducks, 12 chickens, two rabbits, and two geese. It also had at least one pond, possibly two. David, as far as you can tell, was there an attempt made to create enclosures and habitats for these creatures and keep them separated if they needed to be? I just wonder how serious the infrastructure of the zoo might have been. Well, one of the things that I learned is that the sheep could not be completely trusted just to wander around the grass area without running into problems. They oftentimes would jump into ditch. Um, so at, at some point in the early beginning, he had to enclose in a certain area of grass, and then the sheep would stay in that area and eat the grass. They're probably fairly big, big areas that he penned them into. Were people starting to come to the zoo in 1959? Was it uh, accepting tours and visitors? Um, one of the groups that I know would visit there would be the Boy Scouts. Uh, many Boy Scouts uh, visited that area, and there were, you know, into the thousands of people visiting that zoo, you know, by 1960. Well, based on your research, David, you say in 1961 there was kind of a, um, a population explosion, and some slightly more exotic animals started calling the Dye Zoo their home. Yeah, in August of 1961, there was a flood of the Santa Cruz River, and after it died down, some of the plant staff found a pool nearby the river that actually had carp several inches long in it. And what they did is they got a bucket and brought 25 of the young fish in and deposited it into one of the plant's ponds. Um, it was a rare occurrence finding fish uh, in what's normally a dry river, essentially a wash that we call Santa Cruz River. Yeah. And by 1962, um, Dye had added pheasants, peacocks, an Egyptian goose, uh, donkeys, one of them was named Duncan, uh, a monkey named Maurice. He might have preferred Morris, you know. He might have preferred Morris, that's true. Yeah. A calf that name was named Clarence. Uh, they even had a baby alligator and two armadillos. <laughs> so the zoo is turning into a little bit more of a jungle by this point. By the following year, 1963, Dye says in an interview that his zoo had uh, over 600 animals and birds. Who was Cleopatra and why did she become popular? Well, Cleopatra was the Egyptian goose uh, that had flown into the plant area one day. And she became a sensation because she laid uh, five eggs in her nest uh, at the plant site. Uh, people were very hopeful. Uh, apparently, Egyptian geese aren't very common in our area. So it created quite a stir, and the media covered it uh, quite extensively. Um, but all that tension kind of faded away when the eggs failed to hatch a few months later. So for all of the work over three decades that Edgar O'Neill Dye contributed to this project, was, was he ever recognized? 
Well, you know, in 1976, Dai received an award from the Tucson Audubon Society for having over the years developed his wastewater plant into a haven for all kinds of bird life, from grackles to morning doves to uh, ruddy ducks, etc. cetera. Uh, the society was particularly pleased with Dye Lake. Now, Dye Lake was a 42-surface-acre pond just south of present-day El Camino del Cerro and just west of the I-10. Uh, it was a haven for bird watchers of all kinds. And then, you know, in 1982, uh, when Dye retired, the Dye Zoo was disbanded, and the quote-unquote mowing machines, as they were called, were donated to the 4-H Club and the Future Farmers of America. When will people be able to read about zoo history in the Daily Star? Coming up on Monday, June 7th, uh, there will be a story on the early history of Reed Park Zoo, um, starting in 1965 when uh, Gene Reed uh, started his zoo with some prairie dogs, uh, going all the way to 1978 uh, when he uh, retired. So there'll be an early history of that, and possibly there'll be another story either in June or the first Monday of July on the Daisu itself. David Layton's column, Street Smarts, comes out the first Monday of each month in the Arizona Daily Star. Now, we close this week's show with a reading from a book for young readers called Grow, a Novel in Verse. Author Juanita Havel will introduce us to 12-year-old Kate as she embarks on another neighborhood adventure with her adult friend, Bernitha. Bernitha at the Door by Juanita Havel Saturday morning, Bernitha's voice booming through the screen door on the front porch. I'm all fired up and ready to go. Who'll come with me? I opened the door shouting, me, where to? Red overalls, blue bandana, over henna red hair, and a white t-shirt. That's Bernita, older than my mom, looking like the 4th of July, and it barely being May, wanting to borrow a rake, hoe, shovel, and me. Mom says, okay. She does most times, especially when it means exercise and burning calories the way cleaning up the lot on the corner will. Bernitha's got big plans. No surprise. Everything about Bernitha is big. Big belly, big heart, big plans. This time at the garden, going to be blooming by the end of summer on Fifth and Vine. Old Mr. Khan's empty lot, and he says, okay. I pack a lunch, set it on the counter. Now where to find the landlord's shovel? I look in the garage, and there it is, with a hoe, too, hardly ever used. Now, Darlene, how about a rake to go with Kate, and you come, too? Too busy. Sorry. Mom shakes her head all the way to the kitchen, comes back with my lunch. Later, I find out she took the two devil's food cookies from my lunchbox, gave me carrots instead. About Bernita, mean, I think. When I hear some people call Bernitha fat, she's not fat. She's big. She's round. There's a lot of her. 
Bernice is not meant to fit in the same skinny space reserved for people who care about those things. She's strong, too, and she's smart. She used to be a teacher till they closed down her classroom to send all the special kids she taught someplace else. No money, no class, which in a way I'm glad about because now she's got way more time for me. Secretly, I think, but don't tell her, that some of her kids don't miss her. I've been to her class, seen the kids. Some of them didn't know who the teacher was or where they were. When I walked in, they didn't say, yo, or what's up, or who are you, the way most kids would if a visitor showed up. About Bernita, she grows things, catnip, mushrooms, parsley, crystals, avocado, tomato, grapefruit, penicillin. One time, she grew an oak tree from a seedling she dug out of a wide crack in a broken sidewalk and planted it in the park because oak trees need space, Bernitha's words. We all do. She collects things, buttons, bottle caps, beer steins, river water and little bottles, feathers, marbles, and 123 recipes for cheesecake. Bernitha knows things, how to cure hiccups by putting a spoon in a glass of water and staring at it while you hold your breath and sip, the names of all the American presidents and anyone who was ever governor of Mississippi, Illinois, or Minnesota, where to find blackberries in the middle of town in June and pick them without getting chigger bites. She does things, sizzling, stirring, zapping, rocking, purring, jumping, dancing things. With Bernita, everything happens big time. Even the quiet things, like sitting still and staring at frost on the window in winter, or counting cricket chirps when the summer sun sets, or staying up past midnight searching the sky with binoculars to get a look at a comet as it travels past planet Earth for its once-in-my-lifetime visit. Hello, comet. What I like most is going over to Bernitha's and finding out what's up. Juanita Havel is an author, retired educator, and library enthusiast who lives in Senoida. Her picture book, Jamaica's Find, won the second annual Ezra Jack Keats New Writer Award. That award is now celebrating its 35th anniversary. Grow, a novel in verse for young readers by Juanita Havel, with illustrations by Stanislaw Kodman, was published by Peachtree. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance by Yasmin Acosta. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.